It's Friday, August 11th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. Companies that extract, process, and distribute natural gas understand that there are real economic incentives to keep that gas inside pipes and storage tanks. These companies don't want to be leaking gas. I mean, that's money. And these guys want to pay their bills. They don't want to look at fines. Trouble is, it's not always practical to find and fix all those leaks, even if it would save money. That's especially true in the wide open spaces of the western U.S., where natural gas production has been intense in recent years. To get a guy out to someplace 30 miles away takes time. And so sometimes it's easier to let it leak for seven days than it is to summon somebody out there. It becomes a cost of doing business, but that cost of doing business needs to change. As state and federal methane emissions rules come online across the country, small businesses are popping up to help gas companies lower those costs. This week, we're going to meet one entrepreneur who's focused on the human cost of gas leaks, trying to keep oil field workers safe, while also saving companies money and protecting the environment. Our series on the burgeoning methane mitigation industry continues just ahead. First, though, let's take a look back at some of the week's big environmental news stories across Pennsylvania, starting with an update on the fight over how to pay for that budget spending plan approved back in June by state lawmakers. And for help with that, we turn, as always, to the former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and editor of the PA Environment Daily blog, Mr. David Hess. David, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much for having me. It's been a a busy week in terms of the budget. Last week, there was a lot of pushback on this revenue package coming from environmental groups largely, including ours. This week, we've been hearing from some other sectors. We've been hearing from business groups. Can you talk a little bit about what the response to these proposals has been from these other quarters? Sure. And, And the longer the Senate passed revenue package hangs out there, the more opposition it seems to be gathering. And this week, it was business and energy groups that took turns expressing their opposition to the natural gas severance tax and the gross receipts tax that consumers of electric and natural gas would pay that are in the package. And their objections largely revolve around the fact that, you know, this would be bad for business, uh, this would stifle investment, The Marcellus Shale industry has said that they're already paying a tax. That's the drilling impact fee that was adopted in 2012. But I think the interesting thing is there's been a a lot of discussion about the trade-off that was in the Senate package, a natural gas severance tax versus what the Senate called uh, permit reforms. And they include things like the third-party permit review program that DEP would uh, have to develop where permit decisions are taken away from DEP and put in the hands of third-party permit reviewers. Interestingly, the business group said that they weren't promoting third-party permit reviews with the idea of speeding up permits. So it sort of begs the question, the Senate said they made a deal, a trade-off between having a severance tax and permit reviews and permit reforms Yet nobody that's that's affected by either one seems to want them. So it sort of begs the question about who the Senate made a deal with. Clearly, with the statements this week by both Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry and other Marcellus Shale groups and the conventional oil and gas drillers, nobody on that side really agreed to anything. 
So that puts the whole package in jeopardy in the House. I mean, obviously, business and energy groups have a problem with the severance tax just kind of on principle, and it sounds like there's not a lot of enthusiasm for the third-party permitting. What about the other, what they're calling permitting reforms? How have these groups responded to those ideas? Well, interestingly, the conventional uh, oil and gas operators said specifically in a story that the Associated Press carried last week, they mentioned the fact that they don't expect any of these things to withstand legal challenge, either third-party permit reviews the deemed approved permit language that's in the bill now or the uh, special committee that's set up to review and has to approve any methane emissions controls on oil and gas operations because those provisions were stuck in a tax code bill and they represent constitutional issues, legal issues. So it's interesting that industry groups are now even raising the issue of not only third-party reviews but constitutional issues. Right. From their point of view, this is a risky deal in that, you know, we give you the severance tax and in return we get these permitting reforms. But if those get thrown out in court, we have the short end of the stick. I mean, is it possible that there's some kind of 11-dimensional chess going on and that was the strategy all along? Well, I don't want to analyze that too deeply because you could spin all sorts of scenarios. The only thing I know is that there's already a lot of opposition in the House amongst House Republicans, particularly conservatives, to any of the taxes that are in the package. So it would have been an uphill fight anyway. You know, unfortunately, some of the conservative Republicans like the idea of some of those permit reforms. So again, you could see House Republicans likely to throw out all the taxes, but keep the permit reforms, and then we'd be back to square one, essentially. And then we have to start over in the Senate. And then the deal is gone at that point with at least the senators themselves, and they'd have to start all over. So we may be in for some exciting weeks ahead here. Well, if we can move on to some other sort of budget-adjacent matters, the governor this week made the decision to put some funds into what's called budgetary reserve, and uh, some of those, I guess, transfers would affect parks in Pennsylvania, among other things. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. I mean, the last couple of years, this has been a standard maneuver, putting money in what they call budgetary reserve, which basically means, and what it has done over the last couple of years, is whatever money is put into reserve technically is money that is not spent now, but it could be later. But effectively, money that was put in budget reserve the last couple of years is lost. The governor this week put $188.3 million in budgetary reserve. Part of that was a $1.1 million cut to DCNR's budget. Half a million in state park operations were put in budgetary reserve, and 625000 was put into reserve for the Heritage Parks Grants Program. Now, there's still $2.25 million remaining in Heritage Park Grants, so they didn't zero it out altogether, although zeroing out is what the governor recommended. We've been talking all summer about budget cuts to DEP and DCNR. This isn't even, this is on top of that. This is on top of that, yes. And like I said, the past history is that money put in reserve is never restored, although it's technically still there. Let's shift topics a little bit and move over to the southeastern corner of the state where the Mariner East Pipeline project is ongoing. It's been on hold for a little while, the last few weeks, but now I understand that is moving forward once again. Yes, it is. And the Mariner East Two pipeline starts in western PA at the western PA border, goes across the southern part of the state, and ends up in Philadelphia at the uh, refineries there. 
And what the project does is add two pipelines where one is now existing. So there'll be three in essentially the same right-of-way. The pipeline project two weeks ago was stopped by the Environmental Hearing Board, which is the first level of appeals to DEP permits because of water contamination to private wells in Chester County and other spills along the the entire route of the pipeline. There were 60-some spills that were documented by the three environmental groups, the Clean Air Council, Mountain Watershed Association, and the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. And that was enough for the Environmental Hearing Board judge handling this case to stop construction at 55 different locations all along the route where a technique known as horizontal drilling was taking place, where they drill under streams or other obstructions to put the pipe rather than trenching and then putting the pipe in. This week, there was an agreement by all parties, Sunoco, the three environmental groups, and DEP, to put more oversight on 47 of the drilling locations where they use this horizontal drilling technique. And they have Sunoco has to go back and reevaluate each of those sites to determine if that's the best method to use at those particular locations and identify any potential hazards to drinking water supplies, both public and private, along the route. What happens then if they determine that there would be a potential problem in a particular location? Do they have to redraw the route then? Or what kind of modifications they have to make? Well, this, these evaluations are then given to DEP under the settlement agreement, and they have to review and approve them. And if there are any permit changes, like maybe a, a, a route change or changing from horizontal drilling under things to trenching that have other impacts, and their permits need to be adjusted, they have to then go ahead and adjust their permits accordingly. So, yes, there, there could be a number of changes if those evaluations show, say, a high potential risk to nearby water wells and things of that sort. And what about the water supplies that have already been affected? Is that addressed in the settlement? It's addressed to a limited degree. Sunoco has already in the Chester County cases where 10 to 12 different homeowners have had their wells affected. They're going to hook them up to public water supplies. As far as I know, hasn't been settled who's going to pay the water bill yet. My guess would probably be Sunoco for a period of time for the existing property owners, which is sort of typical in these sort of arrangements. The one other feature of this agreement is that as they go along and construct in particular areas where they use this horizontal drilling, they will notify adjacent property owners within so many feet of the construction that they're coming through, that they have the opportunity to sample their water before, during, and after horizontal drilling make sure there are no impacts. Uh, Another big story this week, the state of Maryland apparently is moving forward with a plan to dredge behind the Conowingo Dam, the idea being that this would help keep sediment out of the Susquehanna River. However, there's some disagreement as to what the effects of that might be and how effective and whether there might be unanticipated consequences. Can you give us an overview of the debate there and, and what happens next? Yeah, the, the Conowingo Dam is just south of the Mason-Dixon line on the Susquehanna River. Of course, the Susquehanna River is the key river in the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed area where the states in the watershed need to reduce sediments and nutrients. Well, for basically since the dam was built in 1928, Conowingo Dam 
has been trapping sediment behind the dam, as you might expect, and not allowing that sediment to go downstream, at least the heavier portion of the sediment. And different groups have studied this, the Corps of Engineers and others, and they came to the conclusion in the last few years that the dam is full. It's not effectively stopping sediment coming downstream anymore. And uh, Governor Hogan in Maryland has this notion that if you begin to dredge behind the dam and sort of dredge out some the material that's been accumulating for the last 89 years or so, from behind the dam, that will restore some of the ability of the dam to trap that sediment. There's been a lot of scientific disagreement with that position. People have looked at the dredging. People have gotten concerned about, you know, what if you start mucking around behind the dam in those 89 years worth of sediment? There's all sorts of stuff in there that's been washed down the river over those years. You never know what you'll find. What sort of stuff are we talking about that's been down there for close to 100 years? Well, you can only imagine. I mean, take the 1972 Agnes flood. You know, that was a 300-year flood. It basically scoured a wide area of the Susquehanna River floodplain that included all sorts of businesses and industry, and they have chemicals and, you know, storage tanks and all sorts of stuff. And a lot of debris was washed down the river, just in stick where it washed into the river was washed all the way down because of the force of the the storm and the currents and whatnot. So you could have a lot of different stuff in there that you might not want to dig up. And what about the material that's hauled out? What happens to it? How do you dispose of that? Well, I mean, there's different things you could do with it theoretically. I mean, first you'd have to test it to make sure you're not putting what otherwise might be called hazardous waste somewhere. What the pilot project that Maryland announced this week would do was dig out about 25,000 cubic yards of material. You have to put that in context. There are about 31 million cubic yards of material behind the dam. So basically it will make a divot somewhere behind the dam that you know they hope to determine one way or another whether that would at all be helpful. But when they dredged the Delaware River, for example, to improve navigation and make it deeper for bigger ships, Part of that material actually was shipped by rail to Luzerne County up in the northeast and put on abandoned strip mines to help in the reclamation process after appropriate testing, obviously. So uh, some good use could come of this potentially. It could, again, depending on what the tests bear out. That's presumably going to be part of this pilot project as well because they'd obviously have to safely dispose or put that 25000 cubic yards somewhere. So Maryland is hoping to determine whether this will be effective and you know cost-effective solution. What would happen supposing that they did get the results that they were hoping for? How would this be applied elsewhere? What would it look like in Pennsylvania upstream? Well, there's evaluations going on right now about how much of an impact Conowingo really has. In one sense, because the dam is not trapping as much sediment, it's sort of common sense that then folks upstream, including Pennsylvania, would have to do more in terms of farm conservation projects to trap more sediment than it would have otherwise. So it makes our job more difficult to comply with Chesapeake Bay milestones to reduce sediment nutrients. How much that is, we don't quite know yet. It could be 5 or 6%, it could be 10%, whatever it is, we hope to get some additional numbers probably sometime late September, maybe early October. 
David Hess, former DEP secretary, editor of the EPA Environment Daily. Thanks again for uh, walking us through the week's news. Have a great weekend. Thanks very much. One important thing at stake in the state budget revenue package we've been talking about these last few weeks is DEP's ability to regulate methane emissions. Under one of those amendments to the Senate's tax code bill, a panel appointed by the General Assembly would have to approve any changes to air quality controls for unconventional gas production, such as the draft permit that DEP published earlier this year. If enacted, that permit would make Pennsylvania the next in a growing list of gas-producing states that now enforce methane controls. The state of Wyoming has been a member of that club since 2014, not long after Colorado enacted the first in the nation state-level methane controls. The energy industry has been a dominant economic and political force there for years, and Wyoming also consistently ranks among the most conservative states in the U.S., number one for the last two years, according to Gallup. So it's notable that Wyoming was one of the first states to embrace controls on methane emissions. It shows that while methane is a powerful contributor to climate change, controlling it is increasingly not a partisan or even necessarily an environmental issue. And to illustrate that point, let's meet Matt Murdock. He's the CEO of Alert Plus, a Wyoming-based startup that makes monitoring equipment for the oil and gas industry. Matt is a self-identified Western conservative. In fact, he wore his cowboy boots to our interview earlier this year. As you'll hear, Murdoch is definitely not what you'd call a climate hawk, but he is serious about reining in methane emissions, and not just because it's good for business. Here's our conversation. How long have you guys been in business? When did you start? We began in 2012. It was actually founded by a guy who used to work in the oil and gas industry who got sick and tired of walking out on site and not knowing what was on the other side of the door. We've had instances here in Wyoming where somebody goes to pull a door and it can be stuck and it's pulled the door, created a spark, and the entire thing has exploded and killed a couple of people. Or we lose equipment in the middle of the night. So there were times where he was like, I don't want to walk up there and know what's, I don't want to find out the hard way. And so he came up with the idea. So we have monitoring in place. And then our system actually has an automatic shutdown valve. So if it hits a third alarm level, we can actually shut down the equipment. So since 2012, we began. What was the opportunity you saw at that time? From a business perspective, I mean, it was very much of this is a, this is a needed area. If an oil and gas company can save a quarter million dollars on a piece of equipment for a $5,000 monitoring system, it seemed like a lot of sense. Beside the fact that we had that motivation to actually protect the oil and gas workers. Is it primarily safety applications or are there other, is there more value to it? Oh my gosh. Yeah, we, uh, our, our, our tagline is safety, savings, and stewardship. So safety, obviously, for oil field worker or the public in the general area, um, just that so they're not exposed to dangerous gases, whether it be a school or whether it be an oil field worker, savings. You know, we like to say, send it downstream, not into the jet stream. Why should the company lose money with natural gas leaking for 20 days, um, that's just not good business sense. Send it down line where you can actually monetize that. And then stewardship. Obviously, if we can lower methane emissions or any of those emissions, we're actually helping our environment. We, again, have instances in our corner of Wyoming where ranchers, a lot of, this a lot of our operations in Wyoming are public lands, and we've had ranchers come out and their horses have collapsed or they found cattle lying down on the ground. So taking care of the general environment is just another part of our calling as well. 
So our pitch is pretty much for our company, for a small investment, you know, we can actually bring you to compliance with regulation. We can provide protection for your, your, your employees. And also, we can provide protection for the environment and stop it so that you have less emissions going in the air and downstream. And so it does meet with quite a few people are very excited about it. Um, the general person who's very excited about it are the guys who are actually out in the field. Um, we have very few who say, this is bad. And I think I've had two people in four years who've actually said our price point is expensive because everybody thinks it's a great thing in exchange for what they're getting for it. So that's encouraging. And there is another kind of value that you bring, which is you help companies understand better their own operations. Exactly. And find where they can be more efficient. And Correct. Exactly. The, the digital oil field, the, the elements that are being contributed with the industry, um, technology is obviously advancing. One of the things that we are trying to as our Alert Plus is to be a continuous process that we not be disruptive, that our system can be placed out into a remote location to our main system. And that data will just keep on coming online. It will enable the companies to know exactly when they have leaks to efficiently allocate resources to deal with it at that point in time. Obviously collecting the data, you know, having that data to know what's going on to the environment, to know what data is affecting your employees. But the advances that are being made in the oil and gas field, technology is incredible. It's enabling these companies to be much more efficient in getting the oil and gas out of the ground to send it outwards. These companies don't want to be leaking gas. I mean, that's money. And these guys want to pay their bills. They don't want to look at fines. Um, but we sometimes create barriers to get a guy out to someplace 30 miles away takes time. And so sometimes it's easier to let it leak for seven days than it is to summon somebody out there. It becomes a cost of doing business. But that cost of doing business needs to change. Since you've been in business, how have you seen the methane mitigation industry broadly evolve? Ah, uh, wow, it's definitely gotten much, much more intense. Optical gas imaging was, you know, FLIR cameras were just used on Cobra helicopters by the U.S. military, and now they are on the front line of stopping methane mitigation in the oil and gas field. So that's, to see that shift happen even over the last five years has just been incredible. I think people are much more aware of what these gases are doing. In the old days, a guy would work out in the field and having a sniffer on his pocket was nothing that was out there and he'd go out there and breathe the gas and do his job and nobody even thought anything more about it. But today, it's the people are much more aware of it. And so the laws, the concerns, the general awareness of what this industry does, um, I think is much more in the forefront of people's thinking. I mean, you're in, in several different states. Tell me about the different kind of regulatory environments in each of those places and how that affects your business, I guess. Right. We have salespeople in Louisiana, some in Pennsylvania. We've worked with Enbridge Pipelines up in Wisconsin, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, some in Texas. And so the challenge with the regulatory society agencies is that they actually do not have a category for our gas detection system. They talk about optical gas and then they talk about method 21, which is specific to the handhelds. There isn't a category for the third, this, for our continuous gas detection. So our challenge has been of late is trying to have the conversations with legislators and regulators saying, you need to include this category. Um, fixed gas detection makes a lot of sense. Um, and our challenge has been continually just trying to get the business to buy on and saying, do we want to put this outlay into the expense? So that's ongoing in Colorado? Colorado, Pennsylvania, we're actually having conversations on um, the BLM methane rule 
we have made formal comments to the U.S. Senate and also the House of Representatives on those rules. We love the idea of best practices, and clearly we need to make efforts so that the oil and gas industry stewards to the best ability the resources they have. But their resources include their workers just as much as it includes the resources under the ground. And so one of our issues with the BLM methane rule, for instance, was that the category did not include somebody like us. Um, and so that met with a lot of traction with people saying, yeah, we don't want to create a barrier to one particular. Um, but at the same time, we clearly provide a detection system that would help control the emissions and help the companies to turn a profit. So um, it's been ongoing and a lot of discussion. And as you well know, changing regulation and amending regulation is, is a process. <laughs> and obviously, with regulations changing, that would, depending on how they change, conceivably expand your market. But the fact that you are selling your product at all without any of that pressure on your customers I mean, must be a testament to that you have something that the market wants. We have something the market wants. And, I, and again, it comes back to, I think, the average person recognizes that this makes sense. In fact, one of the first things that we have people tell us is they don't have this yet. And the answer is no, they don't. Something that can have multi monitor multiple gases at the same time at low temperatures that actually has a shutoff valve, so if there is a problem, it will automatically shut off, is, um, is unique in some ways. But regulation would help, I think, or at least the, the allowance, the permission. The way regulation has been is they call it alternate monitoring, and it's the responsibility of every company to go then apply for Alert Plus to be used as their system. So in Colorado alone, I would need five or six companies to apply, um, which makes it's kind of a burden upon the company to go through the entire process and ask for it. So it's been a challenge in that sense. Industry, right, as a group, as a broad generalization, tends to be resistant to regulation, right, for, for obvious reasons. Yes, right. Are you sympathetic to that point of view? And what do you, what do you say to people? When yeah, you know, it's funny because we are, yeah, I mean, I'm from Wyoming. <laughs> and we, you know, Americans are independent. People in Wyoming are like independent squared. Um, rules, we don't really like rules. We are very sympathetic, especially when regulation comes in and creates a burden to the industry. Um, the flip side of that, obviously, is that I think the industry has developed calluses and that they won't, they've kind of gotten to the knee-jerk reaction that they won't make changes unless they're forced to make changes. Now, there are exceptions. There are certain companies that are very forward-looking, very much concerned about the bottom line, very much concerned about their employees. They take a more global perspective of what a return on investment looks like as opposed to just more gas coming out of the line. So regulation helps to that degree. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have a mechanism to reward the ones that want to do the right thing exactly. and not at a disadvantage. Right. But yeah, I get it. And it's really hard because you know we have conversations with the very green and environmental groups, and then we have conversations with the very industry-centric companies. And, and, you know, we gain traction on both sides. Um, but if it were my druthers, you know, I naively, I naively thought in the beginning, I walked into one company and I said, wouldn't it be great if you could walk out into the public and say, we have a continuous remote monitoring system that will protect your fathers and your brothers and that will provide protection for the environment? And the guys said, we don't care about publicity. And I was like, oh, so the realization that not everybody is going to do it because it's a good thing to do. And in my perspective, I think what would be best is when regulation, can, and Wyoming tries to do this a lot. Wyoming is unique in that sense is that we try to set a standard and say, okay, you find the way to get there. 
um, instead of telling you how to get there, but say, we obviously need to lower emissions. We obviously need to lower greenhouse gases. Industry, this is where we want you shooting. Now find the best, best available technology to get out there. And that gives the, the, the world out there, the businessmen, the inventors, the people to come up with better ideas. And there's always going to be a better mousetrap. I mean, is that part of why it seems as though, and tell me if my premise is off, but that these types of regulations are working out much better at the state level. Colorado seems to be a, a success story from what I can tell. Pennsylvania's in the process. Ohio, I believe, just yes. did something. But the federal government just struggles. It does struggle. And I think, again, it comes back to the dialogue. When, the, when all the stakeholders are, the, the stakeholders are defined not only by the citizens and your environmental interest groups, but also the companies themselves. And we all realize, and for example, my county where we live, when the oil and gas industry does well, our schools do well. So it's significant that we have a successful industry, but it's also extremely important that we have a clean environment so that the very kids that we're trying to educate aren't being poisoned at the same time. And so when all the tech stakeholders are in the same room and the dialogue can be open and sometimes fiery, that's okay, but the dialogue can be there, I think better solutions come. But when the dialogue comes from the federal level downwards, it's hard because every state is a little bit unique. Then I think every state has a different feel to it. Tell me more about how these issues play. And you live in Wyoming. You're based in Wyoming. How does this go as a, as a Wyoming issue? Wyoming is definitely a very mineral-rich state. And so as a, as a culture, we are very appreciative of the importance of natural resources. The mineral tax in the state of Wyoming plays a significant role in our education and a lot of our infrastructure. Um, we just in the last couple of years, that the, the dip that we have seen is radically impacting multiple local governments and school districts. And so as a state, the recognition that these resources play a very key role in their daily lives is important, whether a road or bridge um, gets repaired. We have a small community in Wyoming that took out a bridge loan that may not be able to pay back that loan, and that municipality may actually have to stop being a municipality because they can't make their payments. So very real in the day-to-day -day living, um, the citizens as a whole. And yet on the, f on the other side that Wyoming has, which is, again, an extremely unique state in some ways, is that we have a very large segment of our society that is very focused on the environment. Jackson Hole, we have some of the most beautiful areas, um, Yellowstone. And so there is a really high level of concern as well to preserve the pristine nature of our wilderness areas. Um, where we live in Pinedale, where I live, is that we have one of the last, one of the largest wilderness sections in all of North America. And ozone is a big concern. Um, and so the dialogue that takes place between the different stakeholders, again, going to the local community, the dialogue of the oil and gas industry, extremely important that we be in the same room because I think we can sometimes make enemies of the other. But when we're actually in the same room and it's, you know, Joe who works for such and such oil and gas company and Barbara who happens to be a teacher in the school and Samantha who happens to be involved with the EDF or some other green uh, group, sitting down together realizing that all of us need to make this work and nobody here at the table is an enemy. Joe wants a job to feed his family, Barbara wants to teach the kids, and Samantha wants to make sure that our, our nature is still clean. Um, there are solutions. There's going to be compromises, clearly. Um, but that dialogue is extremely important. Did you grow up around here? I did. I grew up in Jackson Hole. So I'm very blessed to have been right underneath the Grand Tetons and right there in Yellowstone. 
Um, there is no oil and gas activity in the entire county. We have 23 counties in the state of Wyoming, and there's no oil and gas activity in that, in that particular county for some obvious reasons. Um, I now live in the county south of that, which is probably one of the, the was the, the innovator of fracking and the oil and gas industry. So it's kind of fun to kind of make that shift between some of the, the most pro-environmental groups and then some of the most pro-industry groups right there in the same, same place. What does stewardship mean to you personally as somebody who clearly values the outdoors and, and spending time outdoors? I think it's our responsibility to leave things better than we found them. You know, I think it gives us the ability to harvest trees and turn them into houses or into paper, but at the same time to make sure that when we're done that we leave things better so that the, you know, our next generation after us can have access to that as well. And so I think drawing um, a fence around a certain thing and say we can no longer touch it is not effective necessarily because we as, a, as a, an economy we need access to these things um, but at the same time you know we have to be wise in that and so going in and clear-cutting for example is not the wisest solution and yet denying it is also not the wisest solution somehow or another to be able to use the resources for everybody's benefit wisely. Well Matt thank you so much. Thank you. Matt Murdoch is CEO of Alert Plus, a methane mitigation company based in Wyoming. You can learn more about what they do and why they do it in a new video we've just posted at the Change for PA website. Change for PA is Peck's campaign for reasonable, effective methane rules for the natural gas industry in Pennsylvania. You can check it out at change.com. However, note the spelling. It is ch4nge.com. Change.com again, ch4 as in methane. NGE.com. The Pennsylvania Environmental Council's website is at PECPA.org, home of past episodes of the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast, blog posts, press releases, videos, and much more where you can find out about PEC's work in conservation, environmental protection, and restoration across Pennsylvania, our work in the state capitol, our work on watersheds, abandoned mine reclamation, illegal dump site cleanup, and a host of other projects that we're working on all the time. Again, PECPA.org, the website on Twitter. We're at PECPA, and you'll find us on Facebook as well. We post new episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies every Friday, so we'll see you again next week. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening.